0: Hi and welcome back to GemCast. Today I'm very excited to be joined by Zara Cooper who is a trauma and acute care surgeon at Brigham and Women's in Boston and is interested in the intersection of trauma, geriatrics, and palliative care. So Zara, welcome to GemCast.
1: Thanks so much. It's great to be with you.
0: Today, we're talking specifically about trauma in the elderly. And older adults who suffer traumatic injuries tend to have worse outcomes. Like most things that we've talked about here before, the reasons are multifactorial and can be quite complicated. So I wanted to try to dissect down and figure out what those reasons are. Why do they have worse outcomes? And then how can we improve the outcomes for our older trauma patients? We'll talk about some of the differences between older and younger adults in terms of mechanisms of injury, physiologic differences, medications. So first of all uh, Zara, what are what are some of the physiologic changes that occur with aging that can make older adults more prone to worse outcomes after trauma?
1: I think that's a great question, Christina. I think one thing we need to recognize is that most geriatric trauma, uh, the vast majority of geriatric trauma is related to falls, and falls are really a geriatric syndrome, and that's one of the things that we've come to appreciate more and more over time, that the reason that these patients are falling are often linked to other disorders that they have, maybe it's vestibular problems or problems with balance and gait, neurologic impairments, Parkinson's, and other geriatric-related uh, issues and syndromes that make them vulnerable to falling in the first place. Then we have to recognize that elderly folks, and particularly frail elders who are more likely to fall, have multiple other vulnerabilities. They have multi-morbidity. So they have medical comorbidities and medical issues that kind of set them up for uh, worse complications uh, and oftentimes will precipitate an event. So so for example, in the case of patients who are falling when they syncopize or even syncopizing when they, they're driving, that can be a major problem. And then also that they're more socially vulnerable. So they're left alone for periods of time when perhaps they shouldn't be. They have a uh, poor access to food, uh, often have poor access to health care, often isolated socially, and so don't necessarily have what they need to avoid some of the circumstances that they find themselves in. So I, I completely agree with you. It's totally multifactorial. And that's really the important point of geriatric trauma is that unlike other areas of trauma, we're really looking at the patient in a much more holistic way.
0: Now let's consider a case of a 76-year-old male with a history of coronary artery disease who's on Plavix, so a pretty common presentation, and he presents after a traumatic injury. Let's say, as you mentioned, a fall is one of the most common causes of trauma. So he had a mechanical fall from standing, tripped over something, possibly had a brief loss of consciousness. Often it's not completely clear, since if it was unwitnessed, the patient may not remember. And he comes in with a frontal hematoma and a GCS of 14. He's a little bit confused. Let's start with EMS. They get called to the house. What are some things specific to the elderly that they should consider when triaging the patient? For example, they have to decide, should they come in lights and sirens? Should they come in non-emergent? Should they go to a trauma center that might be further away? Or should they go to their local ER?
1: Great. I think those are all great questions and things that EMS is struggling with minute to minute. I want to say daily, but I know it's more frequently than that. I think the biggest thing to to keep in mind about elderly patients is that they have occult injuries. They hide things. (laughs) And, you know, even somebody who has a GCS of 14, it's often easy to just kind of write that off as, oh, they're just confused, or they must be their baseline, or perhaps they have a UTI, as opposed to recognizing that it's a result of their traumatic brain injury. The other thing is that elderly patients who fall, like well, other patients who fall and hit their head are at risk of cervical spine fractures, but of course, you know, the elderly have higher rates of osteopenia and fragility, and so they're at higher risk of fracture. And we know that cervical spine fractures in older patients are particularly lethal. So it's important that they consider doing uh, stabilization, inline stabilization. You know, when they take their vital signs, older patients, uh, again, they can hide shock, maybe because of medications that they're taking and beta blockers that make their heart rate artificially low. And we we know that what we consider hypotensive for younger patients is actually way too low for older patients. And in fact, a systolic blood pressure of, of 110 or less raises a concern of shock in an older person. So I think what we really want EMS to do is, is to recognize that these are not just little adults, that they're not just patients who have the same physiologic parameters as other younger, more robust patients, uh, that they have their own unique set of physiology. And so that you can't take for granted that the vital signs and other markers that we use for triage are the same in older patients. As far as where to go, I think the guidelines for triage are fairly clear. I think one of the things that isn't so clear, to be honest with you, there is some controversy here as to whether or not older patients actually do do better at level one versus level two trauma centers. You know, We know for spinal injuries and even some traumatic brain injuries that patients who are treated, older patients who are treated at level two centers do just as well. Um, that there aren't differences in mortality, there aren't differences in adverse outcomes, and for some older patients, again, because of their social vulnerabilities, not being transported to a hospital that's far away may be better. Now, I don't have a lot of data to support that, but certainly the geriatric literature talks a lot about, there's a lot of evidence in the geriatric literature about the negative effects of hospitalization on these folks. And so whatever we can do to minimize the amount of time that they're in hospital safely uh, is the way to go.
0: That's a really important factor actually. I've certainly had patients, elderly patients say, "Oh, I can't go, I can't be transferred to such and such hospital because my wife can't drive on the highway and can't drive at night and so she wouldn't be able to see me." So that's that's an interesting consideration as well. Now let's say when the patient arrives to the ED, what are some things we should consider in terms of figuring out how badly injured they may be or things that we could look for to help find these occult injuries?
1: So I think I think our threshold for radiographs. There's not evidence necessarily that older patients should have a lower threshold for radiographs, but certainly if somebody has hit their head, um, they should get a C spine CT as well. And I think depending on primary what the findings from the primary and the secondary survey would determine whether or not they need additional workup. But you know we have a very low threshold for doing uh, you know what we call a pan CT on these patients because they do have occult injuries because if they have loss of consciousness they may or may not remember exactly how they felt. Um, and therefore they may be hiding rib fractures, which we know can be lethal. So I I certainly think that they should receive a complete workup. Now, one of the challenges is whether or not these patients should receive a trauma activation or not. Uh, I think in most places, the 76-year-old who hits their head has a frontal hematoma and is on an antiplatelet agent would uh, receive some kind of activation, but certainly that's a patient that should receive an activation based on their injury pattern, their traumatic brain injury on an antiplatelet agent puts them at very high risk for bleed.
0: Do you routinely use the shock index rather than, you had mentioned, for example, patients may have artificially low heart rates or their baseline blood pressure might be very high, so a blood pressure of 110 is abnormal for them. Do you know if the shock index is better at predicting severe injury or hemorrhagic shock in the future?
1: So the shock index is better at predicting mortality, Mm in-hospital mortality, As far as the level of injury, no. Uh, I don't know if the shock index is predictive of injury severity score, which is a score that we use in trauma to evaluate kind of the severity of injury, but it's a retrospective measure that's calculated at hospital discharge. Um, We Mm -hmm. use it for risk stratification, really. But the shock index is is, uh, more predictive of of in-hospital mortality. So we have actually recently changed our activation criteria here for older patients, and there are a number of centers that have made local changes in their trauma activation criteria for older patients, but there are not necessarily national standard or guidelines around this. I know that the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma in the Optimal Resources Guide, which is kind of the Bible of how to have a trauma center, um, Mm -hmm. the next version of that book is going to include a a chapter on geriatric trauma, and I I think that the triage criteria will be more closely addressed in that. So that should provide some guidance.
0: And just if listeners aren't familiar with it, the shock index is the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure, and normal is around 0.5 to So this combines both vitals and ideally, as you said, gives a better prediction of mortality. Let's talk more specifically about falls. Falls are incredibly common in older adults. About 50% of older adults who are in a long-term care facility fall each year. How does your assessment of falls in older adults differ from younger adults?
1: So again, I think I think it's recognizing that um there may they are more likely to have hidden injuries and that older patients have greater severity of injury from the same mechanism. So for example, if a young person falls and perhaps they break one or two ribs, I would not necessarily uh, admit them to an intensive care unit, whereas an older person, I'm much more worried about their ability to kind of maintain their airway, maintain their pulmonary toilet, they're risk for developing a hemothorax, uh, just because their tissues are, you know, more frail, more fragile, more likely to be injured um, from a lower mechanism mechanism. Um, injury. Um, So when evaluating them, I mean, I think really a thorough head-to-toe evaluation is necessary. Don't take anything for granted. You know, make sure that you do a primary and a secondary survey, even outside of a trauma activation, whoever the clinician is who's evaluating that patient should look for those injuries. I mean, so many times we are Um, Called, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a trauma surgeon, so we're called after the patient has been in the emergency department for a number of hours already because, you know, some occult injury has been shown in workup later on or Mm. the patient is now complaining of shoulder pain. Um, But I think, you know, a thorough kind of evaluation up front can reduce the time that we catch some of those injuries um, and, you know, prevent missed injuries altogether.
0: Let's say now instead we perhaps we admitted the patient for their rib fractures, and then you find in talking with the patient that they've had multiple falls in the last year. Is there anything that you guys do, or how do you help manage that patient on discharge or while they're hospitalized uh, to help prevent future falls?
1: Yeah, so I have to say we are, we're very spoiled here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess it was four years ago now, a few of us made the argument to our leadership that we had so many geriatric trauma patients that we we, and they most importantly would benefit from having a geriatrician on our service. And so we have triggered geriatric consults so that all of our patients who initially it was all of our patients over 70 and then recently we've initiated a frailty pathway so that we can localize our resources Mm -hmm. um, and really focus them on the most frail and vulnerable elders, they all see a geriatrician. They also have a triggered consultation with a care coordination and if they live by themselves a social worker. So, and we make sure that that happens within 72 hours of their admission, so we can start discharge planning, um, but also considering what resources they need very early on. So I think probably the short answer to your question is what do we do? We take a very multidisciplinary approach Mm -hmm. to these patients, right? I am a trauma surgeon. You know, until I developed this interest in geriatric trauma, I knew very little about falls prevention, so to speak, and certainly not specific to older patients, right? But having a multidisciplinary approach helps me understand that there are a lot of contributors to these falls, right? As we talked about before, there's the social vulnerability, so that's why we have social work involved. A lot of them are not living in safe spaces. Or need to be in nursing homes. or need to ha- be in different nursing homes. And so we have a care coordinator who helps. We have a geriatrician evaluate them because we recognize that medication, you know, medication is an enormous contributor to falls, right? And so is there are there ways that we can reconcile their medications so that we're doing it in the best possible evidence-based way and that we're using, you know, some of the choosing wisely criteria, right? We need to think, again, more holistically about the patient as opposed to prescribing a medication for everything that ails them. One of mm-hmm. the ones that are really going to provide the most benefit. The next thing is also considering what would the etiology of the fall be, whether or not they have a neurologic impairment like Parkinson's, do they have vestibular disorders. Really kind of digging down and doing a comprehensive geriatric assessment really helps with that. We also have physical therapy who see all of these patients who are on our frailty pathway, and that consult is triggered within 48 hours. We also have a protocol so that our nurses are empowered to get these patients out of bed if they meet certain criteria. They're expected to have all of their meals out of bed. In order to make sure that they not only that they don't have muscle atrophy increasing muscle atrophy but also so that it helps orient them and reduce the risk of delirium Um, and then finally as part of this frailty pathway that we have our injury prevention coordinator has done a tremendous job of, of actually triggering a falls prevention information packet that all patients receive patients and or their families receive on discharge even patients who weren't admitted because of a fall but do meet our criteria for the frailty pathway. Mm -hmm. So for example, somebody who's had a motor vehicle crash will receive this information and this whole multidisciplinary approach to treatment that I've described.
0: That sounds like a really fantastic program, and I I agree, it's such a multifactorial problem that no one specialty can solve the issues. It may be they need physical therapy, they need assistive devices, they need glasses. All these different things can interplay to make the patient at higher risk of falls.
1: Right. And I'm so glad you brought up the point of assisted devices because that's just been such a huge lesson that I've learned in helping take care of these patients. And and I must say that I, I feel like a lot of this stuff isn't new. It's just new to us and the mm-hmm. geriatricians have been doing it for decades and I think if we really just think about what these patients need and what this type of patient needs uh, it really becomes self-evident the kind of care that we need to provide at all at all stages I mean um, my good friend Mara Kennedy has done some really beautiful work showing how many older patients who are just in the emergency room are delirious Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we really need to address um, their needs kind of from the time they hit the door. And, you know, one of the things that I worry about in the patients who don't receive a trauma activation, and of course it depends what kind of trauma activation they receive, but if they don't receive any kind of trauma activation, that, you know, these patients who are at such high risk of having these injuries that, whether or not they're occult, but are much more devastating for these patients in the short and the longer term, just kind of sit in the ED on a stretcher just like anybody else.
0: Well, thanks so much for sharing your experience and wisdom. Is there anything else you would want ER physicians to know or EMS providers to know about taking care of geriatric trauma patients?
1: I think for for the EMS providers, I think it's really hard and and they're really in, in a tough spot and I really look forward to our community developing guidelines and frameworks that can be more instructive for them. Mm. But I do think that all in all, we all need to learn how to, we need to understand geriatrics better to take care of these patients Mm -hmm. in the best possible way. And the way the population is going, there are trauma centers like ours where over 50% of our patients are geriatric. Mm. Um, You know, a third of all surgical admissions, for example, are geriatric. And so, you know, instead of thinking about this as a subspecialty, I think we need to start (laughs) thinking about these are our patients. um, And And I would say that, you know, anybody who's taking care of patients as demography shifts really needs to um, become knowledgeable about this. They need to take it upon themselves to become knowledgeable about this.
0: You're absolutely right. I think in the next projections in the next 10 to 20 years, a quarter of all ambulances coming to the ED will be geriatric patients. So really, EMS geriatrics will become an increasing part of their practice, just as it is in emergency medicine, trauma surgery, critical care, Well, thank you again for being on GEMCAST. I appreciate you taking the time to give your perspective. Thanks so much for your invitation. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm going to summarize a few of the main points that Zara made. First off is that falls are a major source of trauma for older adults. And most of these are just falls from standing. They're not falls from second floor windows. Falls are what's considered a geriatric syndrome. Geriatric syndromes are defined as multifactorial health conditions that occur when the accumulated effects of impairments in multiple systems render an older person vulnerable to situational challenges. So basically what that means is it's not usually one specific thing that is making older adults more prone to falling. It's a constellation of things. It's their vision, their proprioception, their muscle tone, their balance All these things together make them more likely to fall. And then frailty is another geriatric syndrome that makes them more likely to have a more severe injury when they do fall. Things like osteopenia, poor wound healing, more fragile skin, decreased brain volume that makes them more prone to intracranial hemorrhage, as well as the use of medications. Many medications can make you orthostatic or they can make you dizzy, or you can be on anticoagulants that can make you bleed more when you do fall. And this can be a vicious cycle because once you've fallen, then you can become deconditioned. That leads to worse frailty that then leads to weaker bones, lower muscle mass, and then again, more falls. About one in three older adults, that's over the age of 65, fall each year. And falls are the main cause of fractures, hospitalizations for trauma, and also the need to go to an assisted living or skilled nursing facility, so loss of their independence. Falls are also the highest cause of injury-related deaths. So in younger patients, it's more things like MVCs, motor vehicle collisions, whereas in older adults, falls are the leading cause of trauma deaths. Now in thinking about falls as a syndrome, It has many different components that feed into it. I mentioned some of them, but others are things like chronic medical illness. If you have diabetes and diabetic neuropathy, or you have diabetes and you get dehydrated, or you're on diuretics and you get dehydrated, that'll increase your risk of falls. Also cognitive impairments, medications, decreased mobility and balance. If you have a falls history, that feeds into your falls sensory deficits, alcohol use, we don't often think about that in older patients, but that certainly can play a part, postural hypotension, depression even contributes to falls, and then other environmental factors, such as an environment that's not safe, or that has a lot of things on the floor, maybe the patient needs grab bars to help them get up out of the bath, and they don't have them. All these things contribute to falls. And what that means is in order to prevent future falls, you truly need a multidisciplinary holistic team. And it sounds like Dr. Cooper has an amazing program at her hospital where they have case management and PT and a geriatrician evaluate the patient and make changes to all of these things. They check their for cognitive impairment, check for medications and polypharmacy. Most of us probably do not have that luxury. What we can do is at least get the ball rolling and refer the patient for some of these services. Another really important point that we've harped on before when a patient comes in for a, after a fall or other trauma is to ask about any recent medication changes. If they were just started on a new medication, that may be something that was contributing and tipped them over the edge, no pun intended, into the fall. Some of the higher risk medications for falls include antidepressants, antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, sedatives, and antihypertensives and diuretics. A few more that also confer an increased risk of fall, and this one I didn't expect, but laxatives because people can become dehydrated, and then also opioids and NSAIDs. And I'm not sure the mechanism for the NSAIDs, it may be a renal interaction, but certainly opioids also give about a 1.4 risk of relative risk of fall. So all of these predisposing factors, frailty, falls risk, and polypharmacy cause an increased risk of falls and also an increased severity of injury with the fall. This can have both direct and indirect effects. I think about the direct effects as things like you have a hip fracture or an intracranial hemorrhage. And then indirect effects are all the things that the sequelae of that. Say you're hospitalized and then you develop pressure ulcers or you have loss of mobility and then you have a DVT or you have deconditioning and muscle wasting and now you can't do your activities of daily living and you lose your independence. So all of these things are important to keep in mind to remind us of the impact that falls have on older adults. When it comes to head injury, we know that older adults have higher rates of intracranial hemorrhage after head injury. This has to do with the fact that the dura is more adherent to the skull. There's cerebrovascular atherosclerosis, and then decreased regulation of intracranial pressure. So once they do have an intracranial hemorrhage, they can't regulate their ICP as well, and they don't clear free radicals as well. There's also cerebral atrophy with age, so there's more space in the skull for the brain to kind of knock around and cause a bleed. That's how I think about it. In addition, as I mentioned, older adults are much more likely to be on anticoagulants. Traumatic brain injuries in older adults carry quite a high one-year mortality, and this will depend on whether they're on anticoagulants and their underlying medical condition and their... Uh, their functioning level prior to the fall. There's an interesting tool online called the MRC Crash Trial Collaborators Prediction Tool for predicting outcome after traumatic brain injury. And I will put the link for that in the show notes. But basically, you can put in the age, gender, their GCS, and CT findings, and it will give you a 14-day mortality and a six-month risk of unfavorable outcomes. Just to give a ballpark number, For adults 55 years and older, the one-year mortality after a traumatic brain injury is 21%. And I I know I'm not quite comparing apples to apples, but for example, to compare to hip fractures in age 65 and over, the one-year mortality is around 15 to 20%, so also very high. When I'm examining a patient who comes in after a fall, I think of it in three phases. First, I want to know what happened prior to the fall. Were they walking? Had they just stood up after sitting down? Had they just had a coughing fit or just urinated or had a a bowel movement? And did they feel dizzy? Did they have chest pain or trouble breathing? So what happened right before the fall? And then what happened during the fall? Did they lose consciousness? Do they remember tripping on something? Did they fall and hit their head on the counter and then hit the floor? Or what was the sequence of events? And then what resulted afterwards? Were they unconscious for any period of time? Did they seize? Were they incontinent? Did they bite their tongue? And were they able to get themselves up off the floor and ambulate, Or did they have to call for help to have somebody come get them? It's also really helpful to figure out if it was witnessed or unwitnessed. For unwitnessed falls, sometimes people don't remember if they had loss of consciousness. Whereas if it's witnessed, you can ask or call the person who saw the patient fall and get a sense for what happened, whether there was any seizure activity, and how long they were out for if they were unconscious. Zara mentioned vital signs in older adults. It's important to be aware that, for example, they could have significant bleeding and yet have a normal heart rate because they're on beta blockers. Or they may have a blood pressure that looks normal, but is much lower than their baseline blood pressure. The shock index is useful for predicting mortality in trauma. And that is the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure, with normal being 0.5 to 0.7. Another useful tool in trauma, such as a motor vehicle collision or a major trauma like that, is the lactate. If the lactate is elevated, that's also predictive of worse outcome and is useful for finding occult shock before it becomes evident on the vitals. We frequently use the term mechanical fall when we're talking about older adults falling. And what we mean by that is that it was not a syncopal event, meaning that they probably tripped over something or they were getting out of their car and they didn't make it up the curb and they fell down. But I want next time you think about this term mechanical fall, consider that it's really not just a mechanical fall. If somebody who's 20 years old is walking and trips on a dog who's scampering by, I think dogs scamper, I'm not totally sure, but they trip on a dog, they're more likely to correct themselves and quickly move in order to regain their balance before they hit the floor. Whereas an older adult with that same scampering dog is more likely to, than the younger adult, to fall and hit the floor or have an injury. The same mechanical obstruction or mechanical problem, even though it is a mechanical fall, leads to different results because of their age and other, not just their age, but their age is a marker for other problems. So even though it's true it was a non-syncopal fall, it's not just mechanical. It has to do with all the other factors that go into the syndrome of frailty. Zara talked about the fact that older people hide injuries, meaning they may not have this severe neck pain or demonstrate the usual symptoms that you think of with various injury patterns. So it's important to do a very good history and exam. It's important to get collateral from either the care facility or family about what their baseline is, or you may not know that they're actually altered when, they, when you see them. Do a very thorough physical exam. Make sure you look at all the joints, palpate all the long bones, range them if you're able to, to see what may be fractured because they can have uh, bony injuries with even just very mild trauma. As Zara said, when you're scanning the head, also scan the C-spine because if it was an injury that was severe enough to cause an intracranial hemorrhage or something that you're worried about in the head, then it could also have caused a C-spine injury. Rib fractures are another pattern of injury that has a much higher mortality in older adults. Older adults are more likely to develop pneumonia, ARDS, and then respiratory failure. They tend to have longer hospital and ICU stays, and in one 10-year retrospective study comparing younger and older cohorts of patients who had similar injury severity scores, it was found that 17% of the younger patients developed pneumonia compared with 31% of the older patients. And the mortality rate for the younger patients was 10%, while for older patients, it was 22%. The mortality goes up steadily with number of rib fractures, as does the risk of pneumonia. For each additional rib fracture, the odds ratio of pneumonia is about 1.16, and for death, 1.19. So once you have three or four rib fractures, that becomes very significant. That's it for now. I hope this has been helpful. If you have thoughts, comments, or feedback, feel free to leave a comment on www.gempodcast.com or via Twitter with the handle at gempodcast. Thanks.